wanted to acknowledge what you might be thinking, but I like it. This is the first time I wore it. Uh, you might see it a lot until the snow falls. So, you know, maybe every week. We'll see. We'll see what happens. No, it won't be every week. Uh, all right. So, yeah, we're going to get into the Word of God. It's going to be awesome. I'm so glad to have you all with us. I so appreciate each one of you in this family today as we're worshiping, just looking around the room and just knowing so many of your stories and knowing present tense what God is doing in so many of your, your lives. Um, it touches me, and uh, I'm privileged to have the, the place I do, to have a, a front row seat to the work of God in so many, even as I'm looking at you right now. And uh, so, bless God, bless God um, for his goodness. Just know that what you hear up here for testimonies is just the tip of the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. God is so at work among us and around us. We sang today, um, I would say as a modern standard hymn, right? How Great Is Our God. Um, it's not a hymn from 1800, it's from, you know, 2000 maybe. Uh, but I love that song. It's so good, so classic. And in there it says, all will see how great is our God. You know that's true, right? That literally every human soul will see the greatness of God. There's a day coming when Jesus will return, and the Bible talks about he will split the sky, and every eye will see him. Everyone will see him in his manifest glory. Never, there will be no longer a question about his power, his glory, his majesty, his lordship, none in that moment, and it will strike the heart of every human soul as well, because every, every heart will see, everyone will see how great is our God. Amen? That's what we're talking about here in the Coming of the Son of Man series. As we're looking at the book of Revelation, it's all about that. It is the believer's blessed hope. It is our great hope to know that this isn't the end of the story. Yes, Jesus came once to save our souls, to pay the price for our redemption and for the redemption of all who will say yes. Hallelujah, that's glorious. If that's all there were, we could worship forever. But it is not the end of the story. And we live in a world today that it's fallen, it's confusing. Sometimes it's really hard, I'm to be honest, right? But to know that it won't be like this forever. Because what the, the hard we experience today is the effects of sin, the effect of the fall, the effect of mankind rejecting God once and many times over. It's the fruit of it all across the planet, in our own lives, in our family histories. But Jesus will come and cleanse it all and change it all. And everything we've longed for, because we all long for heaven, will be our present tense reality. Not in the sweet by and by, but right here on the planet. Jesus will come, rule on planet earth. It will literally be heaven on earth. Jesus will come... Rule on the planet, make everything right. Heaven will be here, friends, and that's your destiny forever. Hallelujah. That's a good, good, good story that you get to be a part of. Amen? When Jesus is enthroned and acknowledged as king, he makes the wrong things right. He does that right now. In your life, in every way that you're willing to acknowledge and enthrone Jesus as Lord, he will bring transformation. He will bring healing. He will turn it all around for you personally. But there will be a day where wholesale, the world will, every knee will bow. 
and every tongue will confess, and he will make all of the wrong things right. That's the day when the book of Revelation, the end of it, we're, all, we're almost there. We've, we've been going through it pretty slow. We're almost the end. That, that's the day where there's no sickness, no disease, no torment. There's no tears shed anymore. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. The lion will lay with the lamb. All the things. That day is coming, and it comes with Jesus. Jesus is the essence of heaven. Did you know that? But when Jesus acknowledged his king, when he takes his place on the throne, he will make all the things right. I'm excited to hear, as I've been talking to different ones too, that you've been reading, some of you have been reading Revelation as we're going through it. And uh, I love that because it shouldn't be intimidating for many people, even you know, strong believers, long-standing believers, decades of believers, sometimes never touch the book of Revelation. They're like, well, it's so heavy. Well, maybe it's heavy, but you need heavy sometimes. You need to learn to lift the heavy stuff now so that you have strength when the intense things come on the earth. Amen? But if you don't lift the heavy now, you won't be able to handle the heavy when it comes. You got it? The word of God here is given to us as a gift to prepare us. The book of Revelation is a gift to prepare us. So here's what I do week by week. Just, and you can take it for this book or for any part of the Bible. You don't have to consume large portions of the Bible. You just have to consume the word with faith. And so as we've been going through the book of Revelation each week, I know what we're going to be going through. I just take those chapters. Today we're looking at Revelation chapter 17 and 18. I read them every day. I just read it. I ask the Lord for revelation. I let him speak to me. I come back to that. I read again. I ask the Lord for revelation. I let him speak to me. And as I said last week, it's not because I'm so anointed. It may be because he lets me speak to you. But I don't believe I get anything you couldn't get if you did the same thing. In fact, if you're doing this, you're probably sitting there, I, already, I, already, I, I read that, I know that, I saw that in the Word. Hallelujah, you're doing what you're supposed to do. Don't depend on me to feed you the Word of God. It's for you too. Feast away. If you only eat one day a week, you're going to be a weak, weak, weak person. <laughs> eat daily. Daily eat the Word of the Bread. But I, I just open it up, read a couple chapters. This is my normal MO with Jesus, not just for what I'm preaching, but in the Word. I think about it, I pray about it, I ask the Lord about it wherever I'm reading, and I just let Him speak to me. And throughout the day, He'll be speaking to me, and so I make notes. I take them into my phone. You might have a journal, but like notes will come to me at the most random times, like, oh, thank you, God. That was the Holy Spirit. And I just tap it into my note on my phone. And that's how, how these things come, come together, and that's how the Lord speaks to it. Revelation sometimes is a crock pot. Uh, it doesn't happen like two minutes in the microwave. It's a crock pot. You just keep throwing the ingredients in, turn on the heat, and let it simmer. Uh, and I believe the Lord wants to give you some rev- a crock pot revelation in the book of Revelation. Truth is, you need the revelation of Jesus, which is what the book of Revelation is about. You need the revelation of Jesus in order to live faithfully in the end times. You need this book. Not just spiritual revelation, you need the book of Revelation. The last one we put in our canonized Holy Bible, you need it. You need to know it, you need to read it. It's the heavy lifting you need to do to gain strength for the days we're going to live in. Amen? So don't be afraid of it. Oh, it's so heavy, I don't think I understand it. Just let the Lord lead you. He's given it to you. He didn't give it to just to the theologians. He didn't just give it to the pastors. He gave it to you. Learn to do some lifting. You may only be able to lift a little bit at a time. Anybody work out? you got to do the heavy lifting if you want to gain the muscle. You start with a little, and you add more. So start with a little. Just don't say, oh, I've never lifted that weight, so I'm not going to. Well, how do you expect to get strong? Go over and lift the heavy stuff. Let the Lord give you strength. Amen? So we're, uh, today, 
you're going to have to get on your heavenly imagination. Always dump in, jump into the book of Revelation. There's going to be symbolic language. God gave you an imagination so you can see things that you can't see with your natural eyes. Amen. So we're going to read some stuff with some heavenly imagination needed. And, um, you know, get ready to do a little heavy lifting. God wants to make you stronger today so you can walk with Christ more faithfully today. Amen. Um, the title of today's message is The Triumph of the Gospel. And the byline to it, which you'll understand by the end of today, is the fall of Babylon. So we'll be uh, reading Revelation part of chapter 17, talking about 17 and 18. As we come to the word of God, would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you that you are with us, that you're in the house. Whenever we gather, you're here. Make us aware of your presence. And would you grant to us, by the Holy Spirit, a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Would you give to us the things that belong to Jesus and make him known to us? Would you, Holy Spirit, do what you love to do and lead us into all truth? And would you glorify the Father in us and through us, that we may know you and that we may make you known? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, context, as we get, again, Revelation chapter 17, I'm giving you lots of lead-in. You should have that ready. Um, we've been going through this. If you haven't been with us, Jesus has been showing his friend John the events of the end times and the judgments that are going to be poured on the earth that will lead many to the great mercy of God. Hallelujah. He is so good. And at this point, we've read, when we get to chapter 17, most of the cataclysmic events that are going to happen and impact the inhabitants of the earth. Um, in this section that we're about to read, Revelation chapter 7, 17, is what some would describe as an parenthetical section to the drama or an ex angelic explanation because there are moments in the drama where uh, John leans over and the angel starts talking to him. And he's like, hey, let me tell you a little bit about this. And that, that's what's happening here. It's an explanation that the angel is giving um, that we need to know to have understanding for the times of the end. So we're going to jump in. Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. So one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Again, see it in your mind. Use your imagination. See that angel come to you. And he said, come, I'll show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, verse 2, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. And then, verse 3, the angel carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. Now, put it in order of what we just read. I'm going to show you the great prostitute. Then he sees this woman. That's who it is. Okay. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. Verse 4. The woman, verse 4, was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with the abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. Verse 6, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore the testimony of Jesus. And when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. All right, stop there. I tried to warn you. It's very interesting language. You have to imagine the picture. What is this all about? 
Well, we interpret the Bible with the Bible, so it's not that hard, and some of these symbols have already been explained if you've been following along with us, so I want to make it easy for you, but we're seeing in this description, we saw a harlot or prostitute riding on a beast. She's dressed in, this woman is dressed in royal clothes and shown to great, have great wealth. She's got the, the jewels and the gems and the gold glittering and all, so she, she has great wealth and power, and she's riding this beast. Now, the beast represents uh, Satan's kingdom through the Antichrist. That's already been interpreted through Revelation. I didn't make that up. It's right there in the text. You, if you read it, you'll figure it out for yourself. So I'm just reminding you. So this prostitute, this harlot with great wealth and power is riding, as it were, the Antichrist kingdom, Satan's kingdom on the earth through a person called the Antichrist. He is known as the beast. All right? So what does this mean? Well, I saw a great harlot, is what it said. Well, in use the Bible to interpret the Bible. In the Scripture, especially through the Old Testament, you will see that adultery or sexual immorality in Scripture many times and is almost always linked to idolatry, false religions, and idol worship. That, that's adultery in the spiritual sense, right? It's when you don't worship God, you worship something else, it's adultery. It's spiritual adultery. So the great harlot or prostitute that we see in this picture of the angels showing John represents a religious system based on spiritual adultery, if you will, to just break down. Um, you could say a system that sleeps with all the religions. Okay, does that make sense to you? It's a one-world religious system at the end of the age that will seek to bring all the religious peoples of the earth together by sleeping with them or, as a harlot would, seducing them, bringing them into her sway. And it will be seen as this woman in the, in the vision was as, as a beautiful and attractive thing. It will be attractive to the watching world, and there will be great power and great wealth attached to this one-world religious system. You see that all there? It's not hard to see. And uh, there will be, yeah, there will be great power and wealth. So the beast, uh, as we have seen already, uh, is the Antichrist, the Antichrist system, represents a political leader who will arise at the end of the days and for, some, for a season will bring the whole globe together for a time in sort of a new world order, if you will, uh, a one world kingdom. He will arise for a season and, and for a time will be, even be able to manage world peace. And that he will be this one who looks so good and gains so much power politically in the earth will be an agent of Satan's kingdom. That is the Antichrist. And uh, so what we see in this picture is that political leader and a one-world religious system riding on him. So there'll be a one-world political system with a one-world religious system that holds sway over all of the earth. All the nations of the earth, all the wealth of the earth are attached to these two. This is making sense at this point. And so what does this look like? It will probably take... And you can see this happening in our world already. Hopefully you're going to see this is relevant. I know I'm, it sounds like I'm talking about way far off stuff. Like, is this relevant to my life? Well, let me just pause and ask a question. For those of you that have been around so far for parts of the Coming of the Son of Man series, we've been reading the book of Revelation. How many of you say it's been relevant to your life today? Today. Okay. Expect that with the same. Okay. We'll get there. Um, so what's probably going to happen with this one world religious system is it's going to take the best parts of all the world religions, the, the respectable parts, the parts people say, well, that's honorable, that's admirable, and it's going to remove the hard parts, 
the tough parts, the calls to holiness, the call to reject immorality. And so it will be very attractive to human flesh. And it will have a message that looks like, oh, I can have my cake and eat it too. In other words, I can believe in this spiritual religious ideology and still do whatever I want. That's why it will be so attractive. Now, for most of us or any person, now let's just take it even out of our context as Christians, anyone who's devout today in one of the main world religious systems is not going to take that leap overnight. But over a series of time and seasons, um, as the culture continues to inform and infiltrate um, our religious systems, and as religious systems seek to gain power from political systems, compromises will continually be made. Well, we can get along. We can do this to get along. And uh, when it, those things become married, and when the, the Satan puts his power behind it, and there's great wealth attached to it, and great influence attached to it, the political world leaders will get behind it too. Because they want the power, they want the wealth, they want the influence. And they'll get behind it. And you, when the the people of the earth see that it looks like peace is coming over all the earth. Like, who's ever been able to do that? And they see the wealth attached to it and the influence. People will say, God's blessing must be on that. That must be what God is doing. And they will be attractive and draw people into it. They will want to say yes to it because we have wrong mindsets and get deceived by the wrong things. And at the end of the day, what we'll have is a religion that claims God in whatever form you like, but can't name God because that would be exclusive. But let me tell you the truth, and you, you all should agree, but I'm going to need to say it. A religion that claims God, but can't name God, becomes so inclusive it's actually worshiping nothing. And there's a sway of many even, you know, real live believers in Jesus today who are leaning in this direction. They like Jesus. They love Jesus. They may be saved and going to heaven, but they're leaning in this way. Well, maybe those people are worshiping the same God as I am. Maybe it's all really not that different. That is a slippery slope. When you have a religion that can try to claim God but not name him, you're actually worshiping nothing, it, and it will help no one. If you're leading people to no one, there's no hope attached to this spiritual system. All truths, the idea that all truths can somehow be equally right is never going to be true. If all truths can be truth, then there's no truth. And no one has a basis of grounding morally or otherwise to stand upon. But when, at the core of it, there's no hope. The beauty of Jesus, the beauty of the gospel, is there's hope. The gospel, in essence, is good news. It is hope for the individual. It's hope for every soul. It's hope for every nation. It's hope for every family because you have a person named Jesus who's gone all the way to express the love of God, but also to take all the punishment for sin and offer a new life. But if you can't offer new life, you can't offer transformation, you can't offer any kind of change, and all we have is all we have, where's the hope? It's the greatest deception of all. Do you see that? 
If there's no Jesus, there's no gospel, there's no hope. It's the greatest deception of all. And to me, the most striking piece of that is to think that I would want to claim faith in Jesus or any other God, but without any hope that would ever change my life. That's the, the, the saddest situation I can imagine a person being in. To think you've laid hold of God, but your life could never be different. I can't think of anything more tragic. No but with, there's no specificity, no clarity, there's, there's no gospel, there's no good news. But the good news is that the gospel will triumph. You know, within a one-world religious system that will come, that is this great prostitute, you know, there will be not just license to, to do whatever you want, but even an affirmation and an emboldenment to people to do what feels good. After all, God made you. How many of you know, just bring it down to your regular everyday life, let's, let's make it applicable if you only always did in your life what feels good, you'd be in a terrible place. Even physically. You know, there's a lot of things I would like to just eat all the time. But the end of that matter literally is death. You can see it in the physical, right? It's the same in the spiritual. If, if we set up a system that says that if it feels good, it might be right, we're setting up a system of self-destruction at the end of the day. You know, our, if we let our flesh, our human bodies, tell us every day what we should do, whether it be our food appetites, our, our soul appetites, or our sexual appetites, if we let our appetites rule us, they will destroy us. But that's the religion of the day, isn't it? Although many times people don't call it a religion, the religion of the day is you do what feels right to you. But if you think about that even logically, it is the path to self-destruction. Now, here's the crazy part. God has given us all of those appetites. Because if he didn't give you an appetite to want to eat, you wouldn't eat and you would die. But the, the key factor is we're not made to manage ourselves on our own. We're given a good father who leads us and shepherds us and guides us and shows us the right ways to manage our appetites and our desires. You know, because you have an appetite to eat is not a bad thing. It's how you use it. The fact that you have a sexual appetite is God-given, but it's how you use it. And that's why we have the Word of God. The Word of God is our standard. And people look at God and the Word of God and the commandments of God, and they say, God's just a killjoy. He's trying to take all the fun out of life. And the lie told to our young people, and I've heard it when I used to do youth group, is like, well, people that are sinners, they have all the fun. That's the biggest lie there's ever been sold. You know what the commandments of God, they are the way to life. If you don't have the, the boundary lines of God to lead you and guide you with all the desires he put in you, then you are on a path to self-destruction. Where's the fun in that? When you live the way of God, you experience life abundant. God, it isn't a kill joy. He's a kill give. The way of God is the way to life. God's, God's never been in the, the and then the, the next greatest deception with those lies that the devil, devil tries to put out there, say, God's a killjoy, but also, 
you know, if God's so good, if he's so loving, why would he send people to hell? God doesn't send people to hell. People reject God. You know who's leading people to hell? The devil. You know who's sending people to hell? It's the deception of Satan. It's that feel-good ideology that one way is, every way is the right way. That is a slippery highway to hell. That's what it is. And we need to call it for what it is. It's not just another way to think. It's like, oh, that's okay for you. No, it's a deception. And don't, let's not blame God for being mean. What did God do through Jesus? He opened the door as wide as possible. He gave clarity to mankind. How do we get to God? Well, we can try to figure it out on our own. Let's try to find a way to God. Let's try to construct a religion to get there. It doesn't work. No, I'm going to step down in human flesh, make my heart and my name known to you through Jesus, my son, so that there never has to be a doubt. How do you get to heaven? Through Jesus. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. His exclusivity is not a rejection. It's an invitation. You find, go off searching on your own. It's a dead end. It's a path to death. The deception, if we, if we choose to even believe that a good God does this thing, this bad thing to keep people out, God did everything to get people in. Do you see that in the life of Jesus? Though he was God, he set aside his glory, made himself the lowest servant of all. Who was he serving? Everyone who'd sinned against God, you and me included. He made himself a servant To bring us in to the kingdom of heaven. Not to keep us out. Not to keep anyone out. Because we would never make it on our own. And if God was a big meanie in the sky, then he'd do what we think he does. He'd weigh us based on our good works. But he's not like that. He's better than that. He knows we are powerless to defeat our own sin. So Jesus did it for us. He canceled the power of sin against us and opened the door wide. Well, I just have to truly believe that Jesus is my Savior, that he's Lord, that he's my, he gave it all for me. That's it. Yes. It's not hard. The deception of the devil says, oh, it's hard. And God's holding it out from people. He doesn't want anyone in there. That's the biggest lie the devil ever sold. If God didn't want people with him, he wouldn't have sent his own son in the likeness of human flesh to save us from our own mess. If God was a big meanie trying to kill our joy, he would have been, oh, you made the mess. See if you can get back to me. He's never been like that. He will never be like that. Are you catching this? Jesus is the way the truth, the life. His exclusivity as the one and only way is the greatest invitation the world has ever seen. Because if there was no clarity, we'd all be lost. If there was no invitation, we'd have no hope. And so in chapter 18, we're not going to read it um, just for time, but you can read it. Go for it. It talks about how in one hour, this whole system 
uh, that the Antichrist kingdom and the one world religion builds will be broken by the breath of Jesus. In an hour, he'll take it all out. Can you imagine that everything we see around us in the world today that's corrupt, that's immoral, that seems to have permeated everything, our media, our education system, our political systems, all of them, I'm not trying to be a doomsday, but let's just be honest, corrupt, broken, right? And, and, and sometimes we might look at that and say, how could this ever change? Revelation 18 says, in an hour. Jesus will break that and turn it around. Don't think he's not powerful. Don't think he's not concerned. But what is it about? Because it says Babylon the Great. And this is, this is putting it more in context. Babylon refers to the Tower of Babel. How many know the story? Okay, if you've been in the Sunday school, you know that story. But if you don't, here's a quick, quick version. So people of the earth decided we're going to come together and we're going to build this tower. And in our, our great strength and intelligence and ingenuity, we're going to make it to God on our own. And they did. They built the tower. They were so unified, nothing would have been impossible to them. And God came down and judged them. Why? Because in their own humanistic strength, they're trying to make their way to God. And at the end of the day, they were all headed for destruction. It wasn't God's, God's meanness. It was his kindness to come down to destroy that tower and scatter them. Because they had grown so puffed up in their own humanistic strength, intelligence, wisdom, and ingenuity that they thought they didn't need God. It wasn't that God was somehow offended. It's that he loved them too much to let them go down that trail. And so when it talks about in the book of Revelation, there will come a day where a kingdom looks like Babylon... It's because the people of the earth will come together and it'll be so mighty and so powerful and we'll say we did it in our own strength. We figured out we were smart enough. We got the technology together. We got the sciences together. We got the, the poets together. We got the artists together and look what we built without God. That's what's happening in the earth today. And God, not because he's offended, but because he loves us so much, and he loves every human being on the planet, must come, destroy the tower, and bring us back to him. Draw us back to himself. The Tower of Babel was this shining example of humanistic striving, and it can really bring humanity together. But without God, it's emptiness. And again, it's a pathway to hell. But there's a moment, in one moment, the stronghold, of humanism and perversion is going to have its legs taken out by Jesus and by the triumph of the gospel. Can you even imagine it? The systems and strongholds that seem so powerful today will crumble in a moment when Jesus steps in and says, enough, no more. I'm not going to allow it. And in that day, I want to promise you from the word of God, there will be a reward for those who choose righteousness, who choose to walk in the ways of God. You will stand there on that day, all of us who walk faithfully with the Lord unto the end, we will say it was worth it. And there will be a recompense for those who choose wickedness, those who say no God, no, 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 no. That day of reckoning will come. So how shall we then live? 
in light of these realities that are already beginning in, in our world? How many of you say, I see this beginning to stir already in the landscape? We see it. How do we do this? Well, we make war against spiritual strongholds. Yes. We say no to ungodliness. We reject false ideologies. But at the same time, we love courageously and outrageously the human beings around us. I say those two because they're not mutually exclusive. Our love for, for God and his ways can never become a reason to hate another human being. I want to say that again. Our devotion to God and his ways can never be our reason for hating another human. Because hating another human is not in his nature. It is not in God's nature. So while we might make war on the sin and make warfare in the spirit against deception and spiritual forces, our weapon in the natural to the people we relate to daily is our expression of the love of God. That is our supernatural weapon to the people around us. See, the spirit of the age says, if you disagree with someone, you have to hate them and make war against them. You have to cancel them. Shut them down. Shut them up. Don't let them talk, and you have to defame them publicly. Right? That's the spirit of the age right now. The spirit of Christ in us says, we love that person we recognize their value to God and treat them that way even if they hate us. Even if we completely disagree with them. What does Jesus say? Love your enemies. Pray for them who persecute you. That's what he did. Love, but love, we have to understand, doesn't compromise the standard. You don't have to compromise God's standards to love another person. You don't have to accept their way of life to love them the way Jesus does. Do you get that? Because that's another false narrative. No, you can, you can esteem the value of the human being on the other side of the table without validating everything they say and do. Amen? You ever have a disagreement with your friend, your spouse, your child? Did it negate your love for them? Never. The love of God is not stemmed by unrighteousness or disagreement. It actually overcomes Love is the standard in the kingdom. Love, not some humanistic idea of love, but the love expressed by God through Jesus and the love expressed in the word of God. The commandments of God are love. They are love to us. You get that, right? God's laws to us are love because they are born from the heart of a God of love. And they only operate in love. When the, the word of God or the standards of God become a weapon we use against people, we've missed it. But when the word of God and the standards of God become the love of God that we walk in by the grace of God, then we are the expression of love that draws people to him because they see the triumph of the gospel in our lives. Amen? Truth of the matter is, in Jesus' life, the ultimate example is that he is not trying to keep anyone out. He's trying to call them in. 
And he wants to use you to call them in. He wants to use your life, your witness, and your love to call people in. He is a lover of souls. I want to wrap this up and bring it home to us. I want to read from Mark 4, Jesus' words. You may know the parable of the sower. Talks about the seed of the word, the seed of the gospel. Let me just read it quick. Uh, Still others like seeds sown among thorns hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come and choke it and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Verse 20, others like seeds sown on good soil hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, 60, and some 100 times what is sown. Why am I reading this parable of the sowers in context to this? Is because it's how the seed is sown and what chokes out the seed that will lead people in the way of deception. That will cause them to slide into the sway of the great prostitute, the, uh, the spiritual adultery that will come upon the earth. And so to understand what keeps us from it, we must understand what, what will hinder the fruit of the word in our lives. Amen. And one thing that Jesus points out here that I think is so significant as we look at Revelation 17 and 18 because it speaks so much about the splendor and the wealth and the power that rides on this one world system is I believe one of the great snares is the deceitfulness of riches, the deceitfulness of wealth. Because many times we even believers can can get into a mindset that says that material wealth and prosperity is somehow a proof of God's blessing on a life. If you've ever been to a third world country and met believers in poor nations, you have to know that that's not true. Sometimes the poorest of the world are the richest in faith. But American mindsets many times equate prosperity with God's blessing. God can bless you, And he loves to bless you, but it is not the sign, capital T, of his blessing. It's deceitful in that way. When we see wicked people grow prosperous, many times we doubt God. Why? Because we've been deceived to think that riches mean something. (laughs) They don't. The devil can align riches for anyone he wants as well. You know that, right? So the deceitfulness of riches is to equate it somehow as the evidence of God's blessing. Sometimes the deceitfulness of of riches is that we believe that money somehow is our source of security instead of God being our source of security. The worries of this life, the cares of this world that Jesus mentions are all temporary. You know that, right? Your life is but a hand breadth. You will have worries in this life. You will have cares in this life. But if the seed of the eternal son is in you, you know this isn't your life forever. Your life is hidden in God forever. Your eternity forever. Whatever worries come to you in this life should not choke out the word of God. The word of God should be your consistency when the worries of this life come. The the fact that you know you're eternally kept with God can keep you strong in the biggest of worries, in the biggest of persecutions, right? Right? And the other thing that chokes out the seed is the desires for other things. A lust for pleasures outside of God. That whole deception that I talked about, the I'm missing out 
Everyone's having all the fun chokes out the word of God. I tell you again and again, it is a deception, and it was the first deception that came to humanity, wasn't it? When the serpent visited Eve in the garden, it was essentially, God's holding out on you. Was God holding out on them? Never. That deception is as old as time. It's the same one being spoken today. God's keeping you from all the good stuff. It's a lie from hell, and it will take you to hell if you follow it where it leads you. Lust for pleasures outside of God? How about we get a desire for pleasures in God? What was that scripture you read at the very top of the service? At the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. Not temporary pleasures, pleasures forevermore. Whatever little pleasures we could find outside of God today will be fleeting in comparison to the pleasures forevermore we get to drink today and tomorrow and for billions of years to come. You'll never look back saying no to sinful pleasure today a billion years from now and say, gee, I wish I would have done that. Gee, I wish I would have done more of that. <laughs> never. That will not be your testimony in eternity. You will look back at all the hard, the things that seemed hard and all the ways people didn't understand you and all the times you wish you could have lived like everyone else and you'll say, Jesus, thank you for showing me that the pleasures of God are so much better. I see now what I couldn't see then, and I live, so we live by faith today in the reality of God's word and his ways. Amen? My, I have so much to say, but we are out of time. We want to be a people committed to one thing, knowing him personally intimately committed to following him above all others this will be the way to stand firm jesus talks in matthew 24 i was going to read it he says this delusion that comes on the earth will be so strong that if possible even the elect would be would be deceived but that if possible tells us this truth that if we truly know him we won't be we can't be we won't be deceived because if you really know someone you can't fool them they can't Someone can't fool you in, in being them. Imagine it was your best friend or, or your spouse, and, and someone tried to dress up like them and talk like them and act like them, and they walk into the room, and, and at face value, you're like, that, that's my wife, that's my husband, that's my best friend. But as they begin to talk, you start to notice it's not them. You know why it's no them? Because you know the real thing. It wouldn't take long for the facade to fall apart, right? So as beautiful, as glorious, as prosperous as what comes on the earth at the end of the days may look, those that know Jesus will not be deceived for long because the longer that lying mouth of the devil speaks through beautiful faces, the more we will see that it's not him. So we don't need to be in fear. Oh no, what if I'm deceived? Don't, don't spend your energy on that. Spend your energy on this. I'm going to know Jesus today. I'm going to know Jesus tomorrow. And I'm going to read the word today. And I'm going to pray tomorrow. And I'm going to read the word the next day. And I'm going to know Jesus the next day. And I'm going to believe the truth that his word is life. His ways are love. And I'm going to let the gospel triumph in my life. So I have nothing to fear. In fact, I'm so fearless, I want to bring as many people with me when he returns. Amen? And none of that stuff that looks so shiny, riding on the beast with the glittering gold, has anything to offer me and you. No matter how much power, wealth, and influence it has for three and a half, yea, seven years, 
it's going to be gone in an hour. An hour. Trust in Jesus, the kingdom that lasts forever. Let's stand together. Um, I want to make an encouragement to you today. Thanks for your patience in the word. I trust it was worth it. If you haven't, to say yes to Jesus. To commit yourself to being a friend of God today. And to repent of any dead works. Any deceitfulness of wealth. Or desire for other pleasures that have come to try and choke out the seed of his word in your life. To turn away today and turn back. To turn back to God. Would you just pray with me? Jesus, thank you.